This is RUF. RUF is one of the campus ministries at Belmont. We're committed to going through the scriptures. We believe that one of, one of the things, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And that word reformed, one of the most important things you need to know about that word is that it speaks about how all of us have a constant need to be reformed by the truth that is God's word. That none of us can be self-referential. Um, all of us actually were created by God, and yet all of us live and think not really as God intended. And even people who have begun on a journey with Christ, who become Christ followers, uh, do not somehow fully arrive and no longer need to be reformed by the Bible. It's something that we continually need to go back and see, are we understanding this message? Is our, our life in conformity connected to this truth and to this reality? Um, and so what we're doing, RUF generally, is we're going to go through books of the Bible in sequence because we believe, and this makes sense, it's not just something we believe, that the things that are most important, if you just read from beginning to end, will get repeated. The things that are the most important will be given their due weight. The things that are not the central most important things will come up every now and then. But by doing this, we hope to actually hear what God says and to hear what he says is most important most often. Rather than me saying, well, I think these people need to hear this tonight. No, we're going to go through the book of Galatians. And we thought about that. The reason we're going through the book of Galatians is because it's one of the best books for helping people who have grown up around Christians or even grown up in church understand the difference between Christianity and what passes for Christianity in our culture. There's a lot of things that go by the name of Christianity that really are not what the Bible means by faith and the gospel. And so we want to explore this book, this letter of Galatians. Now it's a letter that was written uh, by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to people that he knew, people who he had actually taught Jesus. He, he was the one who had taught these people about Jesus and what he did, his life and his work on the cross, and why that mattered. And these people had come to believe that, that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. They'd put their hope and their trust in that. And then Paul had left, and then some false teachers had come in after Paul and had preached very much a different message to these people and said, no, what Paul told you is not really right. It's not enough just to believe on Jesus. You need to also do a bunch of things. You need to do a bunch of stuff. And unless you do this stuff, God isn't really pleased with you. And you really shouldn't even consider yourself a good Christian at all unless you do all these things. Now, as he goes through this letter, Paul at times talks about what some of those things are, but he really is getting to a deeper principle. What those particular things are that the false teachers were telling the Galatians is not the most important message for us tonight. They were things like circumcision and different rules about how you eat. They were cultural things that had been elevated to being equated with the gospel itself. And in so doing, they had, had really distorted this message of free grace. That those who are going to be Christians become Christians because of what God has done, not because they've done all the right things. And I don't know, if, if you've grown up and been half awake at all, and you've been around Christians, you've probably realized that a lot of people don't seem to get that. They don't seem to get that becoming a Christian is not 
um, about you doing all the right things. It's about God breaking into your life, taking your heart of stone and turning it around and be making you a heart of flesh that you could be moved to follow him and receive him. It's a supernatural, miraculous thing. And whenever you forget that, you go into thinking, well, it's like any kind of relationship. I've got to get God in my good graces. And what Paul's getting at here in chapter 3 is he's kind of getting into the meat of this issue that there are really only two ways to live. And you can get at it by asking this question. What is it that you rely upon? Every relationship relies upon something. In every relationship you have, there's something you rely upon. Either, either this person's graciousness to continue to call you up and hang out with you, or your own ability to impress them enough that they want to continue to hang out with you. There's something you rely upon in every relationship, and it's true with God as well. And what Paul says here is there basically are two options for how you can relate to God. You can relate to God based upon or by relying upon your keeping of the law. Your keeping of this list of things that you're supposed to do. That's one way that you can try to have a relationship with God, is by relying on your law keeping. The other way is by relying upon His promise and His faithfulness to keep that promise. That's what chapter 3 is about. And let's dig into this by reading first, starting uh, at chapter 3, verse 10. I actually have one extra Bible here. Does anybody not have a Bible that they can see? I'd love for you to be able to see a Bible. Read this. Yeah, back here in the back. Justin, come up here and get it. There you go. But you recovered quickly. That was nice. There may be some Bibles in the back, too. Sometimes there are. Some of them are in Spanish. Uh, yeah, there are mostly Spanish ones left. You guys grabbed all the other ones already? Maybe you've learned to do that. Okay. Sorry. Um, you might go back there and look, and you might find one. But I'm going to read it for you here. Chapter 3, verse 10. Yeah, they're not there. I think they're more farther back. Yeah, they were like on that ledge or back in the way back there. You might look around back there. Yes, good. Okay. Galatians chapter 3, start at verse 10. All who rely on observing the law or keeping the law are under a curse. For it is written, and then he quotes from the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, Paul says, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. And again, he's quoting that. So he's saying you can't be justified. Remember what I, I defined that word justified um, two weeks ago. And I said to be justified means to get the well done way to go from God because you've done everything that he asked. It's to be declared beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything God asked. That's what it means to be justified. And the Bible says that you can't be justified before God by keeping the law because the Bible says, and he quotes here in verse 11, the righteous, those who are justified, righteous and justified are related words. Those who are righteous, those who are justified, live by faith, not by law keeping. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, and again he quotes the Old Testament, the man who does these things will live by them. So doing, if you set out on the path of doing things to get God to like you, you have to keep going down that road. It has to become your whole 
life. If you do these things, if doing is what you're relying on, then it will have to consume you. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, again quoting the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that means the non-Jews, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And then he brings up an example to try and clarify, which, because we're so culturally removed, probably confuses things more. But hang with me, I'm going to explain this and why this um, example matters and why it helps us. Verse 15, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant or read human contract that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture in Genesis does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but to and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ is the seed talked about. What I mean is this, the law, he means the Mosaic law, which was introduced 430 years later after the promise was made to Abraham, does not set aside the covenant or the contract or the relationship previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, that means the Mosaic law or your keeping of the Mosaic law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So you can't be both. If you're, if you're relying on the law, you're not relying on the promise. You can't be relying on both at the same time. Verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? If it wasn't to set aside the promise, what was the point of it? It was added, Paul says, because of transgressions until the seed, that is Christ, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. In other words, if a law could produce life, then, gosh, the perfect law of God would have done it. Not only is is it true that the law can't produce life, but even if a law could produce life, it doesn't matter because the whole world is a prisoner of sin and you can't keep the law. So it's hopeless. But, it says... Jesus uh, was promised and given. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now this is a complicated passage. Let me pray that the Lord would help us, and then I'm going to try and unpack this. Lord, we, we pray that you would help us. This, uh, this, this tightly woven argument is sometimes difficult for us to follow. And yet it seems that Paul is really getting down to the, the, the meat of the matter here in Galatians, 
with this section. Help us to understand. Help us to understand the difference between relying on the law and relying on the promise and help us to do what you call us to do here, to rely on the promise by faith in Christ and to repent and to reject all relying upon the law. And thus, Lord, help us to be set free from the curse. Help us to be set free from the prison. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I tried to sort of make some explanatory comments here, but let me, let me just tell you the big picture of what he's talking about here and then try to explain maybe how, how his argument proceeds and then why it matters. Because I think that what he's saying here is absolutely vital. If you don't understand what Paul is saying in chapter 3 of, of Galatians, you don't understand the gospel, you don't understand the law, and you don't understand the Bible. Now, I don't think you have to hang around with Christians very long to realize that that's a pretty big deal. If you don't get what Galatians chapter 3 is saying, then you're not going to get what the Bible is about, you're not going to get the law, and you're not going to get the gospel. And those are all really big, important topics in the Bible and in Christianity. So this is an important passage to look at. Now, what Paul is doing is basically contrasting two different ways of relating to God. Two different reliances. And there's different words that you can use to explain this contrast. But I hope you see he's continually drawing a contrast between two ways of living, two ways of relying, two ways of relating to God. And it has to do with this. The one way is relating to God based upon the promise. And he regards that as relating to him by faith. Promise, faith, gospel, all go sort of over here in this one column of one way to relate to God. And on the other side over here is law, observing the law, law agreement versus promise agreement. Now, these are two different ways of relating. And here's the thing. In the last passage that we looked at two weeks ago, and you can get it on iTunes, you know, if you, wanna, if you missed it and you want to go back and hear, okay, wh- where did this come from? Um, Go to RUF at Belmont on the iTunes podcast store and you, can, and you can download it for free. But what Paul was talking about was this idea that Abraham, Abraham was declared beautiful in God's sight before he did anything that made him deserve that. A lot of people really misunderstand Abraham. They think Abraham was this wonderful guy who did all the right things and we should aspire to be like him. In fact, if you actually read the Bible with any care at all, you'll find that Abraham was kind of a scoundrel. Uh, For instance, twice he told his wife, let's lie to these people that are going to want to rape you and, and let's tell them that you're my sister so that they'll take you and leave me alone. Right? That's the hero of faith in the Bible. Okay? Not only that, but he doesn't believe God's promise. In Genesis 15, God reiterates this promise that I am going to make of you a great nation. I'm making this promise to your seed. And then in chapter 16, Abraham falls into unbelief, takes matters in his own hands, and tries to bring about the promise by his own power, by sleeping with the servant of his wife, and makes an absolute mess of things. Abraham is not the hero of the Bible. But Abraham is one who believes God. He doesn't believe him perfectly. 
It's not the strength of faith that saves you. It's the object of faith. He believes God, and the Bible says he's given credit for righteousness because of that belief. The belief doesn't earn the righteousness, but the belief connects him to the coming seed, who is Jesus. He puts his hope not in his own law relying or his own obedience, but he puts it in God and God's promise to do what Abraham can't do for himself. Okay? 430 years later, God speaks through Moses and gives the law. Now, in Paul's day, these false teachers were saying that God, for a time, related to his people on the basis of the promise made to Abraham. But after a while, that didn't really work so well. I mean, they got themselves in bondage in Egypt, and it was just a mess. So God came up with plan B, and plan B is you need to obey the Mosaic law. And if you do that, well, that'll work better. And as a matter of fact, since Moses came later, he gives us a better understanding of what God really wanted all along. And you might be tempted to misunderstand Abraham, these teachers in Paul's day were saying, unless you really understand that it's the law that God really cares about and what God really wants. Okay? Now, of course, what the Bible says is the law is important. But the law is not the end in itself. It's not the goal. The goal is relationship. The goal is relationship. And how has God laid down that people can relate to him? He said it to Abraham. It's based upon the promise. Trust in the promise. That's the only way you can have a relationship with God. And what Paul says is when, when God speaks again through Moses 430 years later, you need to understand that within the context of what he's already said. So Paul's saying that God hasn't changed his mind. God has not changed his mind at all. Rather, you people have misunderstood Moses. You've put Moses and Abraham at odds with one another. In actuality, they're both speaking the same message. And unless you understand this idea of the promise and how the only way you've ever been able to relate to God was based upon his promise, you won't understand Abraham or Moses. And you won't understand the Bible. You won't understand God. And you won't understand faith. And you won't understand Christianity. And you go running around telling people that are trusting in Jesus that they're not good Christians because they're not doing all the right stuff. And now it seems familiar, doesn't it? This confusion still reigns in churches, even in evangelical churches, about how do we relate to God. People all the time are told, all you need to do is invite Jesus into your heart. And then we basically tell them, whether in words explicitly or whether it's just implied but very clear nonetheless, that if you really want to be a Christian, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and this. And this is called discipleship. Christianity, you know, come to Christ is all about grace, but discipleship is all about you just sort of getting in there and toughing it out. And you go to church so that you can be continually encouraged to remain a disciple. And you get every now and then warned about how people that quit being disciples go to hell. And this is sort of the whole dynamic by which Christianity is made to work for so many people. And Paul said, that's not what it's about. It's not about that. It never was. Now, understand this. Paul uses the word law in his writings in different ways. Paul does not think that the law is a bad thing, but he thinks that you relying on the law or relying on law keeping as a way to relate to God is a bad thing. 
Again, it gets down to this issue of reliance. What are you relying on? Either the law or the promise. And what he says here in verse 10 is, if you're relying on observing the law, you are under a curse. And then he quotes the scripture. It's written. God said it. If you're trying to rely on the law, you're under a curse. Why? Because once you start down this path of thinking that I've got to get God to like me or bless me because I do all the right things, you can't ever rest. You can't ever rest. You have to keep it up. If you want God to love you based upon what you're doing, well, here's what Jesus said. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Not just one moment, but from the moment you're born to the moment you die. Is that what you want? Is that the basis upon which you want to try to relate to God? The only way that people go down that path is if they're incredibly naive about what God really wants or they're incredibly deluded about what they can actually perform. It's a hopeless, dead-end road. It is a curse. Once you start relating to God that way, you'll never know joy. You'll never know peace. How can you? All you'll ever think about is all the things you didn't get right. You're you're sort of going to always be in this scenario where you've got this balance, this weight, this scale, if you will. And you've got the things that you're doing right on one side and you've got the things you're doing wrong on the other side. And you're always going to be wondering and worrying, did I do enough good deeds? And then if you actually take the Bible seriously and you realize that it says that even your good deeds are filthy rags and everything's over on this side, good night, what hope do you have? None. So you are relying on a curse because God says if you want to choose that road, you have to do everything perfect from the heart. Now, a lot of Christians think that it's enough to just do these external things that the Christian community says are all you need to do. And sometimes you hear little, little, you know, little quips like, you know, don't smoke, drink or chew or go with girls who do. Like if you do that, that's all you need to do. Well, if that's all you need to do, well, maybe you could relate to God based on law relying if that's all you have to do. But it's not. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The externals are not the issue. What's your heart? What are you relying on, right? So it's a curse, and it's a curse not only existentially, in reality, it's a curse subjectively. It's a curse as far as your own experience, because you can never know peace. You can never know peace. Now, the gospel is not about that. The gospel, Paul says, brings joy, freedom, the promise of the Spirit. This whole letter is talking about the kinds of things that the gospel brings. Law-keeping, as the basis for relating to God, can never bring these things. I love the way um, John Bunyan, who's the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know if anybody ever reads Pilgrim Progress anymore. It's a shame. It's a wonderful book. It's a classic. And he has this little verse where he says it this way. Run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The way Paul is using the word law in this context here, law means command. God commands all kinds of things in the Bible. But 
please don't be so naive as to think that all you need is for God to tell you what to do. Like, if you just knew what to do, you could run out and do it, and God would love you. Don't be so foolish. The road to hell is down that path. Thinking that all you need is to know what to do. All you need is the law. The law cannot bring life. See, here's the problem. The law cannot give you life. And you might say, well, that's fine. I don't need life. I'm alive. No, you're not. The Bible says that spiritually you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You need resurrection. You need a rescue, as Paul puts it back in Galatians chapter 1. The law cannot rescue anybody. It can only tell you what you need to do. That's not good news because you can't do it. It's not good news. You can't do it. But the promise, the gospel, which is a promise, is good news because it says this is what God is going to do. You see the difference? The law says do this and live. The gospel says, the gospel says I will do this. God says, I will do this. Now, there's a beautiful picture of this. You might say, what does this have to do with Abraham and Moses? Well, one of the most beautiful pictures of this in the whole Bible is in Genesis 15, which is the passage that Paul is discussing here in Galatians. It's this picture of Abraham. And Abraham is called into this relationship with God. He doesn't go looking for it. God calls him out of the blue says, follow me, become my person, be in relationship with me. And Abraham has difficulty believing this. And so at one point, God says, look, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Abraham, listen, do this. Go get some animals, cut them in half, spread the pieces apart on the ground. And Abraham says, ah, I understand this. This is what we do to cut a contract in our day and age. We cut apart the pieces, and then whoever was making the agreement would walk together through the pieces of the animal saying by this ceremony, if we don't keep our part of the bargain, may it be done to us what's been done to these animals. It's like stick a needle in my eye, you know, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's sort of like the biblical version of that sort of thing. Um, It's this idea that if I don't keep my bargain, you can tear me apart like these animals. So Abraham thinks he understands what God's up to. We've got a relationship. We've got, we're going to make an agreement. God's promised this, and now we're going to walk through these pieces of the animals. But God does an amazing thing. He puts Abram into a deep sleep, and then he passes through the animals by himself. He does not allow Abraham to join hands with him and say, Okay, God, you do your part, I'll do my part, and we'll have a wonderful life together. Not at all. God says, that's not how you will relate to me. The relationship with me is based solely upon me, my faithfulness, my promise. Trust it. That's what what Genesis chapter 15 is all about. So then why the law? Why the law? Well, the law comes to convince us that only the promise will do. The law comes to convince us and to show us that there can be no basis for a relationship with God except by His promise, His rescue, His faithfulness. 
The law was never given to Israel so that they could say, ah, now we know what to do. They already knew what to do. They were to walk before God as his people. The Ten Commandments is just a tenfold summary of what God had already told them to do. It's not anything new. It's just fleshed out a little bit more. But they could never do it. And Moses didn't think they could do it. And God didn't think they could do it. The Ten Commandments, you might remember, starts out with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. (coughs) Before he has lived this way, he says, I'm the one who rescued you. The relationship begins with a rescue, just as it did with Abraham, just as Paul has been teaching in Galatians. If you forget that, then you may read the Ten Commandments as this is the things people need to do. And you see people, you know, kind of post them on courtroom walls and try to think like people just need to do these things. But the law was given to lead people to Christ. And Paul uses a really interesting word here in um, verse 24. It's this, this, um, some translations say the law was a tutor. It's this idea there was a slave whose job it was in the Roman world to take the children to school, to escort them to school. That's the word he uses here. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The law was to was to reinforce and to reiterate the message that only by faith, only by God's promise, can you relate to him. Right? It's a huge difference, this difference between a law agreement and a promise agreement. And I think I've used this illustration, but let me just say it again. If I say to Michael, for instance, sitting here in the second row, I'm going to give you a million dollars. That's a pretty great thing. And for Michael to get the money... The only person who has to be faithful is me. The only person who has to keep his word is me. But if I say, Michael, come over to my house and do some chores for me all afternoon, and I'll give you a million dollars, it's a completely different relationship. I know it still seems like grace, but you've actually changed the relationship. Now it's no longer based solely on my promise and my faithfulness. It's based now on his performance and my performance. In the first case, in the promise agreement, the only one who has to perform is God. In the second case, both Michael and I have to perform. That's a law agreement. The question is, the vital question is, which is the gospel? Is it a law agreement or a promise agreement? And Paul says, it's a promise agreement. And look at verse 18. If the inheritance... If what we get from God depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. And Paul, you can hear him saying, and that's ridiculous, because of course it depends on a promise. God made a promise to Abraham that your seed would inherit this promise. So Paul, you know, is basically wrestling with this question, which was a big deal in his day and still is in ours. Should you interpret Abraham by Moses or Moses by Abraham? Is the gospel, the way you enter into a relationship with God, a law agreement or a promise agreement? And he builds his case with two points, and I want, I want you to see this. He builds his case by two points. One, the chronological order. Abraham came first. The relationship that God established with Abraham is not rescinded by what comes through Moses. He doesn't do a 180 with Moses. It's the same relationship. God relates to his people the same way. 
And people that don't understand that, there's a lot of Christians who don't believe that. They're wrong. They're wrong. Paul says it as clear as can be. He's building his whole case here on, on this idea that Paul, that, sorry, that Abraham and Moses are both saying the same thing and both teaching the same thing. So that's his first, first point. He says, you know, you can't change a covenant once it's been made. It's just like your contract. I actually went to the bank today because AmSouth is changing over. Regions is taking over AmSouth. Maybe some of you have been caught in this, you know, some of the hassle of that. One of the things that happened to me through all this is one of my accounts got closed because I hadn't put any money. It was like negative 32 cents, and I hadn't put any money into it for a month. And so they closed the account, and I got this little thing. So I went down to the bank, and I was talking to them about this, and it was, you know, there's this other, like this special thing you can do if you're, and I actually had a banker friend help me with this back when I was a musician, and I was a complete mess with money. I'm not a great handler of money now, but I was really a mess when I was a musician. I would bounce checks left and right. And he said, Kevin, we have this thing at the bank you called overdraft protection, where if you bounce a check, we'll draw money from this line of credit and put it in your account to cover your checks. I said, that's great. Okay, so I've still had this thing forever. And my wife had one too on her account. When we got married, what's interesting is our checking account, where I'm able to be added to her checking account, but I wasn't able to be added to this line of credit. They said, you can't take on a debt that's already been established. You can't take on in a relationship with this bank that makes you a debtor that's already been established. It's the same thing. We have this kind of stuff still in our day. That's what Paul's saying here, is that you can't change a contract once it's been established. God established his promise, his way of relating with Abraham. Moses can't come along. God can't even come along and change that. So the chronology is one reason why he says you have to know that Moses and Abraham are both teaching that salvation is by God's promise, not by your performance. Second, though, he says, look at this word, seed. It doesn't say seeds, it says seed. And you may say, okay, what's the deal with that? Here's the deal with that. What Paul is saying is this promise that was made to Abraham of this inheritance of this nation that would be blessed The word used in Genesis is singular, not plural. Abraham was actually promised Jesus. Not just some farmland in the Middle East. If you think that what God promised to Abraham was that he would have physical descendants that would live in the land of Palestine for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, oh my goodness, that is so demeaning to what God actually promised. God actually promised something so much bigger. Land in Palestine, farmland in Palestine, is not the key to God's purposes for the world. Jesus is. What Abraham was promised was Jesus, the one who would come, who would provide the righteousness that you've been given credit for. And again, you had no hope if it wasn't this way. So why does the law come? The law comes so that people would remember that our only hope is God's promise and God's rescue, not what we can do. The law reiterates that. The the law is not opposed to the promises of God. The law actually drives you to the promises of God. Now, Paul doesn't say everything there is to say about the law in this passage, but, but this is the point he's making. The law drives you to Christ 
The Puritans used to put it this way, the law drives you to Christ and then Christ drives you back to the law, not for your relationship with God, but so that you can learn how, how can I live my life in a way that God would be glorified. The law gives you direction. But the point is, the law drives you to Christ, not to your own righteousness. Now, that's the whole point about this thing. And, and again, because we're prisoners of sin, if God comes to us and says, do this, it doesn't help us one bit. The only thing that will help us is if God promises to rescue us, to make us alive, to deliver us from bondage. And that is precisely what he does. That's good news. Hallelujah. So three closing points in application. Why does this matter? It teaches us about the purpose of the law. It teaches us a true view of the Bible. It teaches us about uh, the gospel itself and teaches us how to pray. Um, here, here's the first. The purpose of the law. Again, the law is to lead us to Christ, not to give us an alternative way of getting to God. It was never meant to be that way. The true view of the Bible. If you think that Moses and Abraham disagree with each other, if you think, as I know is taught sometimes in some of your classes, that the Bible is just a mishmash of contradictory ideas that somehow got stuck together, you'll never understand it. Unless you wrestle with how is Abraham and Moses saying the same thing, you'll never get the gospel. Here's the point. God is both merciful and just. The one who says, I will make you alive, is also the one who demands that you live a holy life. In the gospel, those two come together. Because what Jesus comes and does is he takes the punishment for the life that you didn't live, and he lives the life you should have lived and gives you credit for it. God, the Bible says, is both just and the justifier of the wicked. The promise and the demand both go together. In other words, the, law, the, gospel, the gospel calls you to something bigger than even the law does. But the gospel gives what it demands. The, the gospel gives you life. The promise of God has the power to wake you up and make you alive. Faith feeds on the promises of God. And that gets us to the last point, which is this. this. Understanding this law and gospel issue teaches you how to pray. I, I talk to people all the time and I wonder, do we pray? And if we don't, why don't we pray? And I, I think that this is one of the main reasons. I think that so many Christians struggle with prayer because they don't relate to God based on his promise. They try to relate to God based on their performance. And I tell you, one of the things that will absolutely kill prayer is feeling like you're not doing the things God wants you to do. It's like, what right do I have to go to God and ask him for anything when I'm not doing all the stuff I should be doing, right? We feel guilty. We feel like we've let God down. So how can we possibly go to him in prayer? It seems a mockery, a hypocrisy. But here's the, here's the thing, guys. If you understand that you relate to God not on your performance, but based on his promise, then you understand that God delights to hear your requests. He looks upon you, if you're a Christian, not as one who's continually screwing up and disappointing him, but as one who has the righteousness, the beauty, 
of doing everything right because Jesus did everything right. And you've been given credit for that. So when you go to God, you go to a father who's thrilled with you and wants to bless you with all kinds of things. Not because you've done the right things. You can't go to God in prayer based upon your performance. You can't do it. You know that. You might mope around and hope that he'll take pity on you because you're so miserable, but you will never have confidence and joy in prayer unless you understand and unless you relate to God based on his promise and his character and his faithfulness. And when you begin to make that shift, man, it just opens up a world of joy. To be able to relate to God and go to one who has promised to give you life, to ask him for things that he's promised to give you, man, that's confidence. That's joy. He may say, wait a little while, but he's promised to give it to you. We've been working on this new CD and, and we've wrestling with a title um, and finally came up with one, this, this phrase, wake thy slumbering children. And it comes from a hymn. The first line of that hymn is, Father, for thy promised blessing. Do you understand? It's a hymn that basically encourages us to pray to God for what he's promised to give. God has promised to renew and bring revival to his people. So many people completely misunderstand that passage in Jeremiah. that They they distort it, and I know the NIV translation makes it sound this way. Like when we do all these things, when we humble ourselves, when we fast, when we pray, then God maybe will change his mind and send revival? That's not it at all. Actually, Jeremiah is making a promise. Then, then, when, this, when I send this to my people, the spirit of fasting and prayer, when I send it to them, then revival will come. In other words, it's a promise. It's not do this so that God will bring what you want. Prayer happens because we believe the promises of God. It's the only basis upon which we can really pray for very long and for, with much fervency. So understand this, the only way to relate to God is based upon his promise and his faithfulness. That opens up the Bible, it opens up your understanding of what the law is about, and it opens up this whole idea of prayer. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, we thank you for your promises. I pray, Lord, that we would, that we would learn more about what you've promised, that we would not be content to just know that you promised to send Jesus. But Lord, what are all the other blessings that come with him that you've promised to give to your people? Lord, may we be hungry and thirsty for those things. May we cry out to you for those things with boldness because we know that you've promised them. Not because we deserve them, not because we've earned them. And Lord, I pray that you would set us free, set us free from the curse of trying to rely on our own performance. Lord, for your good, for your kingdom's sake, and for our own sanity, would you set us free? In Jesus' name, amen.